der Triathlon Show. everybody and welcome back to another episode of that triathlon show the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com i'm your host michael and on today's episode i interview nate wilson nate is the coach of triathletes flora duffy and kevin mcdowell uh, flora as you probably know won the women's individual race in tokyo in the olympics and kevin did an amazing sixth in the individual event and took a silver medal in the mixed relay with the united states in addition to coaching these triathletes, Nate has an extensive background in the world of professional cycling and is currently the cycling performance manager of EF Education First, which is a world tour team. So in this episode, we discuss Nate's views on training and coaching, and we go into a lot of specifics around how Flora and Kevin prepared for the Olympic Games in Tokyo. But before that, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration. Precision Hydration create electrolyte products that you can match to how you sweat and fueling products that make it easier for you to hit your numbers easily. They also provide a fantastic amount of information on their blog, in their newsletter and in interviews that I've done on this podcast with founder Andy Blow. You can search for them on scientifictriathlon.com on topics like how to fuel and hydrate to optimize performance in long races or in hot or humid conditions, on how to avoid cramping, how much energy to consume, and much, much more. They have free tools on their website like the online sweat test and the quick carb calculator, and you can book a free one-on-one consultation with an expert from the team. Use the promo code show 15 to get 15% off your first order on precisionhydration.com. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Indoor Swim Trainer is a swim training tool that you can use at home, allowing you to improve technique, work on your power and stamina, and to save time and stay consistent. Consistency is so important, but sometimes it is tough to find the time to get to the pool. So to have a time-efficient option to complement your pool and open water swimming at home is invaluable. In addition, you can use it to do things like swim, bike, brick workouts and to work on perfect core activation and streamline with the help of the built-in instability element of the swim bench and a great catch by the height of the swim bench that forces you into a high elbow position. The Senate Swim Trainer does not take up a lot of space and it is very affordable, even more so with a 20% discount code that you can get on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with coach Nate Wilson. Welcome to that Triathlon Show, Nate. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Uh, it's uh, my pleasure. Can you start by just uh, giving the audience an introduction to yourself, who you are, what your background is in coaching and endurance sports and so on? Sure. Um, yeah, my name is Nate Wilson and uh, my background is largely in cycling actually uh i was an athlete as a cyclist and then stopped competing in 2013 and finished a degree in physiology at the university of colorado and since then i've been sort of just working and coaching and moving through a few different roles um but in the world of triathlon i'm also coaching flora duffy and kevin mcdowell um, just as their personal coach. Um, so that's maybe more uh, why I'm here today. Um, but within cycling, I've held a few different roles. I worked for five years for the U.S. Cycling Federation, 
um, first just this kind of like a intern uh, working with the coaches and the athletes. And that was a really good opportunity for me to learn a lot. Um, and I learned a lot of specifically about these like U23 road cyclists. Um, so that served a big basis. And then I worked as for two years as the U23 national team coach. Uh, and then one year as the high performance director for the road and track programs, which is much more of like a overview role, sort of encompassing anything related to athlete performance. And then now I've been working for two years in professional cycling for the EF Education First NIPPO professional cycling team and kind of a performance and coaching role. Yeah. What's your role within EF specifically? Does that entail a general overview of uh, the training or, or are you coaching some of the athletes uh, of the team on an individual basis? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so it's a little bit of both. Um, together with my colleague, Peter Shep, uh, we are responsible for having an, an overview of the whole team's training and being the people that kind of report uh, athletes' fitness levels or how they're developing or whatever's of importance back to the sport directors and helping shape race strategies and rosters but then i'm also responsible for coaching a handful of athletes on the team individually um and then a big part of my job is also to live in girona where we have a big population of riders on the team so i'll do quite a lot of like on the ground coaching like motor pacing and organizing group training sessions that goes more beyond it's just for any riders that are there on the team trying to help them and kind of just like a really basic and tangible way of like not being the one that says the really high level or like scientific stuff more like, okay, how are we going to execute today very well? And like making sure a car is behind them so that if they want to fuel at 90 grams of carbs an hour, they actually have the means to do so for a six hour ride, just sort of like the real tangible factors. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, for anybody that might have missed it, for whatever reason, we just had the Olympics in Tokyo uh, a bit more than a month ago. And uh, we're uh, recording this at uh, the very end of August. And uh, Flora Duffy uh, won the women's individual uh, Olympic distance or Olympic gold. And Kevin McDowell was uh, sixth, I believe, in the men's individual. So so that was uh, two fantastic performances by your athletes in the individual races. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was really nice. It was, uh, with Flora, I was, uh, it's probably not fair to sit, like expected makes it sound the wrong way, but I think that, uh, to win was very much the goal. Um, with Kevin, yeah, the, at the start of the year, the goal was just to make the selection for the Olympics. So to finish sixth was something kind of beyond like both of ours biggest dreams of what we thought would happen so yeah that was a, also a, that one was really special yeah uh, let's dive into your coaching and training philosophy a little bit can you can you give an overview of that yeah sure i think yeah with my coaching philosophy i think i have a few things that i really believe in and one of them is just to really try and be consistent over time so I'm a big believer in working in quite a moderate way. Like we almost never do, especially with my triathletes, we almost never do sessions that are really impressive or any single session that's very challenging. Um, 
we mainly try and always work in a way that's quite doable so that over time we accumulate quite a big workload. Of course, that's like with periods of rest inserted uh, between. But yeah, it's almost my whole philosophy is that over time you're going to do a larger sum of work if you consistently work within your ability rather than trying to do like really huge knockout sessions that then like you can only get up for every so often. Um, so yeah, we really kind of stay away from that kind of work would be like one of the big things I really try and uh, aim for, but maybe that's a bit abstract. And then the other thing I would say that I really try and aim for as part of my coaching philosophy is just always balancing the idea of like base, aerobic base work, and then intensity. Uh, because I really think in the short course triathlon, the intensity aspects in all the sports, but especially in bike and run are super important. Um, but to get the best response to that intensity, you need to have a good base. Um, otherwise, it really shortens sort of the amount of intensity you can handle and how long you might hold a response uh, from that sort of more intense work block. So it's something that we're always trying to cycle through the year um, and drive based on sort of the race calendar and think from the outset of the year, this is kind of how these things are going to cycle rather than say like, okay, we have preseason preparation training. And then from like March till August, it's in season sort of intensity and race maintenance training. Like we might all of a sudden in May be training nearly exactly the same way we were training in December. And in February, we might be training the same way we're training in June. And it might be kind of far out from a race, but I believe sort of Cycling those two aspects allows things to grow higher over time. Yeah. Uh, so follow up on that. Uh, how how long would a typical block, if you want to call it that, be when you're cycling back to, let's say, uh, the aerobic base training, uh, even within the racing season? Would you do it for one week, two weeks, three weeks, or, or what, what? What is the duration of that? Yeah, almost always at least two weeks. Um, but then a lot of times it would end up being a function of like what the period and the calendar is going to be and then working back on how much intensity I think we need, like what the timing of that would be before the next race. And then almost kind of like filling the gap with more base work. Um, when we do base work, I'm quite a believer in like never being completely removed from intensity. Um, so like in the bike and in the run, there's still intense aspects, like quite a lot of sprint work, or even like short bouts of anaerobic work, like 20 seconds hard, 40 seconds easy, that I believe, but like then combined with more easy endurance pace, tempo type work below the threshold that I think allows us to be building the base, but also keeping the athlete familiar with sort of like on the bike, higher power um, and powers over threshold so that then they can transition back into a block of intensity um, more quickly. Um, for example, in the period between uh, Leeds and Tokyo, uh, we probably, which was, let's call it four weeks, about eight weeks. Uh, right after Leeds, we probably did around two weeks, just more simple base work um, because you've also done a decent bit of intensity building to a race like that just kind of reset things and then go more into the specific preparation for uh, the games. 
And to be honest, if if the race calendar in the spring for Flora had been more full, uh, that base period after Leeds might have actually been even longer and the intensity period ahead of the games even shorter because um, there would have already been so much of that stimulus in the system earlier in the spring. Mm. During those base phases, when, when you add in uh, some intensity, would the oral workout still feel uh, quite easy? You know, it's or I'm, I'm trying to get at, would you have one workout per week uh, that is kind of still challenging, not uh, very much doable, as you say, that was another tenet of your... Yeah. Uh, of your coaching but but still challenging or would it be uh we're actually just sprinkling in a little bit of intensity so so as a whole that workout would not be challenging at all it would be more on the easy side than on the than on the challenging side yeah oh, it's funny it makes me think it's almost a question the athlete would have to answer of how they perceive it um because some they think the more intense days are the easier ones for them and more of the like aerobic base days might be harder like doing some of the longer sustained tempo work. But yeah, usually it wouldn't be super challenging. Uh, it wouldn't be anything like sustained VO2 power type intensity or like sustained threshold type of intensity. Uh, it would always be something with a shorter work uh, duration than rest duration. Um, and yeah, but they would often I would maybe grow it uh depending on the time of the year. So it kind of moves towards that idea of like the work interval getting longer, the rest interval getting shorter, and then you transition into maybe more of the specific intensity stuff. But no, usually it, it might be, yeah, it might be challenging. Like it, it definitely, a lot of times we might do a workout where it'd be like three times 20 minute sets where the first five minutes are 20 seconds hard, 40 seconds easy. And so like then in that period, we stay in touch with, some intensity and keep it familiar and then 15 minutes in like tempo or zone three below the threshold um some more like normal base strength work um but i wouldn't say it's an easy workout no no it doesn't sound 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 too easy definitely um all right and and what about the volume uh how might that change between those two types of of periods the base or base block versus intensity block is the volume very different or is it similar it's a little bit different like usually on the bike it would come down a little bit in the intense uh periods but it's not hugely different like one thing i find is like some of these triathletes are carrying such a big workload all the time that there's almost not that much range we move in in terms of the oscillation of the volume so the volume will oscillate but compared to say maybe some of the like just cyclists i work with where they might have some really big volume weeks of 30 hours and then uh lower volume more intense weeks of 20 to 22 hours like when you think of that as a percentage it's a pretty big swing whereas with these short course triathletes i work with uh we don't oscillate the volume that much. It's more, I think, just changing the composition of the volume. Yeah. Uh, roughly what uh, what amount of weekly hours do you tend to to have with the, with the short course triathletes? Yeah, let's see. Uh, 10 to 12 hours a week on the bike. Um, sometimes more, especially if we're trying, if like, that all kind of depends on what's going on with the running. Um, but 
if things are going well with running, uh, 10 to 12 hours a week on the bike. Um, like Kevin often will run around six hours a week, uh, which is usually in the 80K a week range. And same thing, the running volume probably oscillates a bit more than the cycling volume where like we might give a week where we want to make it a little bit more of a run volume week and not necessarily pull way back on the cycling volume, but just place runs first, pull back on the intensity a bit. Um, but yes, all right. So 10 to 12 hours a week on the bike, uh, around six hours a week running, and then around 20 to 24K a week in the pool. Um, hmm. Yeah, it, it quite often comes out to weeks around 25 hours, but then I always think in my head that they're, they're really bigger working weeks than that because also both Kevin and Flora are doing quite a lot of like gym and sort of mobility and strength and just rehab work on top of that. And even the things like going to the physio and getting massage, it's okay. It's not training, but it, I think it's an hour. It's a, it's a work hour. It's, it's one less hour that they have to themselves to just sit and have a coffee with friends. So their, yeah. their work weeks are quite big. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, when we talk about uh, the, the other aspect or the, the first aspect that you mentioned actually about just trying to be consistent and not doing uh, what you might call epic workouts, uh, keeping it relatively manageable. Uh, what, can you give an example? What would be one of the hardest workouts that, uh, that Flora or Kevin did in preparation for the, for the Olympics? Yeah. Let me think. I mean, we did a little bit more. The race season for Flora was really different this year than we would have thought it would be or wanted it to be because she only raced one time before the Olympics. So we probably trained a little bit harder uh, ahead of the games uh, than maybe we would if she was racing more. So, I mean, probably the hardest workout we did was something we've actually never done before, but that was just to actually mimic uh, a race straight through to sort of like make up for having one more day of that stimulus where she did a open water swim uh, in a lake near Boulder that was around 700 meters and then a 20k hard bike with a group. She actually did this with Kevin. Um, so Kevin really pushed her in the water and then Kevin straight from the bike did five minutes really hard because that was kind of what we wanted to get for him for that day, because he was also training really with the mixed relay in mind. So it was good for him to get an effort like that in. And then there were two other, uh, well, there was also Joanna Brown that was training with Flora. So we had a decent group for this day. And so Kevin did this effort really hard. And then the rest of it, they kind of like breakaway simulation rotated for the rest of the 20 K. And then she did a, four kilometer basically tempo run uh straight off of the bike so i mean that was probably the hardest uh workout we did um and there was the, honestly the first time she's ever really done something like that at altitude and that's the first time we've ever really done something like that but it was just kind of a decision we thought we should make to bolster up from missing a bit of the racing stimulus because it's also not even just the swim bike run it's like the getting the shoes on and like being like having a really hot, 
tough time staying on the wheel while she's trying to strap the shoes on the bike and a good transition. I mean, these are the stimulus that I think are super important that if you don't race at all, you, you can totally miss them because we don't usually do a lot of brick work or something because from a physical stimulus, I actually don't think it's super necessary, but for sort of these more technical elements and sort of the familiarization of the sensation, I think it's really important. Um, hmm. So that, that was quite hard. Um, but then the, the workouts that we did that are maybe like more normal workouts that we might use other times that are like the hardest workouts um, for Flora and Kevin. It's, yeah, it's usually just when we do uh, some VO2 work, like a lot of times we'll do a session that's a mix of intensities kind of where like, we'll start with, for example, like a 12 minute where they ride tempo power and then do a 15 second acceleration every three minutes, then three times three minutes hard, three minutes easy, um, kind of with the aim of doing the best power they can across the set, and then six times 80 second efforts that are a 20 second sprint straight into 60 seconds of threshold. So, I mean, it's it's quite a complicated session on, on paper. It's probably more complex than is necessary in order to achieve the goal, but uh, that would be like an example of one of the harder sessions we do. It's kind of like a blend of uh, intensity across the zones. Yeah, which is what you will have in in, in the race. Uh, so yeah. so it's I mean you can mix and match the intensities in a multitude of different ways, I guess. But but I think it's when we talk about draft legal triathlon, it's very clearly not just one intensity. So so it makes sense to have that mix of intensities in in your key sessions. Um, I'm curious with, with a session like that, would you prescribe it the way that you did now, kind of as a verbal, the best average power for three minutes, and then just verbally say, okay, threshold effort, and do those other things you said, or would you have power targets or or something like that in the prescription? That workout specifically, almost always the first effort, that's like the 12 minute with pace change, would be dictated by power, and then the last one that's the 80 second effort it would be like 20 seconds basically attack by feeling and then 60 seconds at a prescribed power like just based off of their threshold so that they kind of like neither overdo it or underdo it um and then the three minutes it kind of depends whether we're at altitude or not and how much vo2 work we've done if if, if it's like one of the first vo2 workouts we've done it would almost always be prescribed by power so that they don't like overshoot where like because uh, it's one of those things where I'd much rather them start a little bit low and be able to add a few watts each repetition so that we complete sort of the whole work volume within the sort of intended range rather than do one rep really high and then do another two reps basically at the threshold power um, if they kind of blow up. But once we've done a few and I can feel the fitness is building, and maybe we almost want to, uh, I really hate the word test, but just kind of see where they're at, uh, then I would say it exactly like I did, of just aim for best average power across the set. Mm, yeah. And uh, in those in the intensity blocks uh, when, when you're preparing for racing, uh, would you how how many intense workouts per week would you roughly do? Would it be like a typical would be two hard swims, bikes, and and runs? Or is that roughly what you do, or is it different? Yeah, it's probably pretty close to that range. Um, I mean, some of it with the running, it depends on what you count as a as a hard session. But um, 
usually it would be two hard runs in a week. And then a third run that has like, it would be hill sprints. That's like a, like 12 second hill sprints, this kind of thing. Like I'm just a really neuromuscular aspect at the end of a long day. Like we would do that on Saturday, which is like usually our highest volume training day of the week. Um, but yeah, it would usually be two harder bikes, two harder runs, uh, two harder swims, maybe a third harder swim kind of depending on, uh, yeah, almost like what pool groups, what swim groups they're matching up, um, with, because that's something with, we definitely don't have a training squad. And so the swimming a lot of times is driven more by the, the, like there will be things we talk about, okay, we need to get this done and we need to watch out for this. And these days need to be easy. But then a lot of it's like filling in the blanks of like matching up with good squads and like having the camaraderie. Um, yep. But yeah, on, on the bike and run, it would never really be more than uh, two tough sessions in a week. Um, yeah, it would never really be more. Yeah. And uh, the nature of those tough sessions would would a, a large focus really be on the example session you described with mixed intensity is kind of mimicking a race in a way or would you have also have a lot of sessions that are kind of specifically vo2 repeats or threshold repeats or or something like that yeah we would um that's the thing like that session i described might be something that we'd be getting to as we're getting closer to a race to make sure all the components are coming together but then like on the way to getting there we might do a lot more training that's more yeah focusing on a singular system kind of and just building that component in in general we do almost no threshold work um like personally i'm a big believer that doing the vo2 work above the threshold kind of pushes your ceiling up and then doing the aerobic like tempo work for longer sustained periods below the threshold i feel that those two components come together to give you the ability to ride a good threshold power. And so then we'll do some amount of threshold that I feel is necessary. Uh, I call it like a, for a familiarization effect so that you can like now ride at the threshold power that you've kind of like through training determined the ability to. Um, but we almost do no like three times 10 minute threshold, like hmm. almost never. Um, we'll do some small bouts of it, like an eight minute threshold within a different workout kind of thing. Um, but for the VO2 stuff, yeah, there's plenty of times where we'll do it more, uh, focused specifically on that power range on the bike. Um, and a lot of times I kind of progress that in terms of like the duration of the pieces. Like we might, if we're trying to build VO2, we might do two workouts a week. One of it might be like what I call a broken VO2. That's either like 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, alternating between VO2 power and more like zone two endurance power, um, or 40 seconds VO2 power, 20 seconds pure recovery. Um, and I like that as like a way to start building familiarity with VO2 power, but like in a very, like more of a doable way. Um, and then other times we might go for more steady VO2, like two sets, four times two minutes, six times three minutes, four times four minutes. I mean, I, I almost tend to think on some level what exact sessions we do doesn't matter too much. I try and put more emphasis on picking the right type of session at the right time rather than like 
exactly the right session, I guess. Mm, yeah. Um, so, but yeah, final follow up on, on this then. Uh, is it fair to say that in the intense blocks, you are kind of focused, well, the, the focus on the intense workouts tends to be on above threshold work uh, because you mentioned doing the tempo work more so in the aerobic phase and as part of the, the aerobic base building. Is that correct? Yes, I'd say so. I mean, we'll almost always keep a pretty strong underlying of tempo work through every work phase we're doing. So like if we're doing a VO2 work, we'll almost always start with a 10 or 15 minute tempo piece uh, just as like kind of an opener to make sure that also that sort of stimulus isn't going away and becoming uh, totally foreign. Um, and if we're doing two VO2 days a week, maybe on like a Tuesday and a Saturday, we might have a Thursday that's uh, including some just manageable tempo work. Um, but yeah, almost never include much threshold work. Okay, yeah, great. Uh, now let's uh, discuss a little bit uh, specifics regarding the preparations uh, for Tokyo. And the first thing I want to ask about is the tapering. What strategy did you take with, with regard to the taper period? Yeah, so I have like a pretty clear idea in my head of how I like to taper for these one-day triathlon events. That's uh, it's quite simple, but for me, it's basically like a two-week process where around 10 days to two weeks out, um, we take it quite easy to cre create quite a lot of freshness in the system um, so that then in the week or, yeah, a little ahead of a week, maybe eight, nine days, because usually maybe we would take it quite easy in a Monday through Friday and then use the weekend to start opening back up with a bit of load and then try and make the week leading into the race a quite almost normal uh, type level to a normal training week. You know, maybe a little different in terms of some of the specifics, a little a little bit lower in some terms of some of the volume, but like the idea being I always try and avoid being in a situation where we're trying to rest into the race. Uh, because I think for a super intense race like this, athletes uh, never feel really good if they're too fresh. And I think if we drive the load too hard, too close to the race, then you're in this position where you really have to rest hard. And anytime you just rest that hard, say three, four days easy straight into a race, and then maybe just one day of pre-race openers or something, it's really easy to really shut down and just not feel good so yeah i try and have it be that two weeks out from the race we've kind of finished anything that i might be almost like concerned about from a fatigue perspective so it gives us the freedom to take that little bit more aggressive rest and then train in quite a normal way leading into the race mm, yeah so do you know off the top of your head like or just rough ballpark numbers what would a typical volume be in that second week before the race versus the actual race race week uh, because it sounds like the volume might be higher than in in the race week almost, almost normal perhaps and but then the week before would be significantly lighter yeah yeah um and some of it like for tokyo also definitely gets driven a bit by travel and uh logistics and what you have to do like going to tokyo for example you have to take two days off 
just to get there. Um, so it kind of dictates how much you can do. Um, but like, yeah, the, the week before, maybe we'd pull back on the bike to around uh, eight hours. Uh, the running, the volume might come down a little bit, like a would always be a shorter, long run on the weekend before just to like reduce stress. And then the week of, the volume would probably stay similar. So the volume stays a bit pulled back, like say on the bike around eight hours. For the run, yeah, it would stay closest to their normal weekly run volume, um, which is different for Flora and Kevin, which is maybe why I'm being a bit abstract about it. And it's, yeah. been, diff- it's been pretty different for Flora at different times, to be honest. Um, but the thing that would just come back is the intensity. And we would just do pretty similar volumes of intensity as we might do uh, in like a normal training week with kind of the same rhythm to it. Mm, yeah and uh, well out of interest since you mentioned it uh, what is what what is flora's typical run volume now or what was it leading into tokyo she had one of the fastest female olympic run times that we've ever seen i believe so um so yeah what what roughly how much running did she do yeah leading up to the games she was doing pretty consistently around 50 kilometers a week um Mm. there's been times in her career where she's run more regularly around the 70 kilometer a week mark um but yeah in in mid-april she had a little bit of an injury um when she that kind of just cropped up when she traveled from south africa to boulder to start her sort of summer season in the u.s where she has a base and then leading into the games or leading into leads she was not able to run a lot um, and it was really just mainly running indoors using the lever, like kind of to lower body weight. And so she, then she was building sessions there and then doing a little bit of running on ground. And then in Leeds, she ran a really, she had a really fantastic run, um, like a 33 high, I want to say. Um, and uh, so then from there, we said, yeah, we just have to like realize that at this point in your career, you have enough maybe chronic volume backed up that you don't have to do a ton of volume. Okay. There's certain sort of intensity that we need really to drive sort of biomechanical and neuromuscular aspects, I think are the really important parts for her. Um, Cause like on the bike, you build a lot of the physiology to hold on to a 33, 34, 35 minute effort. Um, but there's obviously big differences in terms of the application of that aerobic power mm. on a bike compared to running but yeah we together with her run coach we just made the plan that we don't need to push the volume and leading into tokyo to just really try and keep it in a range that feels safe and take some confidence from leads that uh, we can we can take what feels like maybe a more conservative pattern than we would want to but like we think it's going to work um so yeah the yeah. volume is relatively low yeah yeah uh that's uh yeah really interesting and but really sound advice uh definitely uh considering injury history but also as you said the chronic volume that she has at this stage of her career um and then uh what about heat adaptation heat training for tokyo now the the race day didn't end up being as as predicted let's put it like that with uh, the environmental conditions but but i assume that you still went into the games with some sort of preparation on that front 
Yeah, we planned for the heat. I think we were ready. Um, the nice thing is, so Florida did the test event in 2019. Um, and so we did basically a heat preparation protocol leading up to the test event and took pretty good notes of it. We did it in Boulder. Um, and so that ended up being a really good way for us to just be totally familiar with it. Um, and we felt good about the response we got from it. And the response being, like for me, that she was ready for the heat, but also the stress of the any intervention we did didn't feel like it was so high that we had to dramatically alter the, the training. Um, because that was one thing I, together, me and her run coach Ernie wanted to really be cautious of, of like not putting, like not putting the idea of preparation for the heat as higher priority than just being fit and prepared for the race in a general way. Because I think depending on what interventions you're using and what level of them and how many days per week, the stress can be really high that you really have to pull back in training. And okay, if you have to pull back in training, you might be giving up some of what you think is the best preparation for sort of the more specifics of the swim bike run. Um, so we really wanted to try and take a bit of a balanced approach. So I think what we did that I think allowed us to take a more balanced approach is rather than do say like a 10 day or two week block of heat preparation, just leading into the race, where then maybe you want to keep the frequency of exposure to the heat pretty high, like nearly every day. Um, we stretched it out to say a four week period, uh, where we were going to more ramp things up in terms of how much exposure to the heat we had kind of almost like peak them at a high level of stress and then, and then taper them down so that hopefully at the point at which there was a high, higher level of stress from the heat stuff, uh, we'd kind of ramped up to it. So it's not such a shock to the system that we had to way pull back on training. And then we're also ramping down from it a bit as we lead into the race with the idea being as long as like we made that ramp down within the like five, six, seven days ahead of the race, um, we wouldn't really have like a washout effect from the adaptation we'd gotten. Um, mm -hmm. So that's kind of the more broad overview. If you want, I can talk yeah. more about the specifics of the interventions, but. Yeah, yeah, just a little bit like, yeah, what, what, what would a typical session look like? Yeah, so we did a mix of things. Uh, like basically we qualified a few different things as a, as a heat stress day. Um, and that would be doing a, a run or a ride in sort of, well, it's just a room in Flora's house. Uh, Kevin actually used it as well, but that we'd set up two years prior uh, with kind of a weather station. So we monitor the temperature and the humidity. And it just has this huge humidifier. Um, and so, yeah, we would get the room up to 25C or so uh, and like 80 to 85% humidity and with no airflow because we just wouldn't use a fan. With no airflow, that's quite a hot and humid environment. Um, so we would do like a run or a ride in there. Um, we would do some pool sessions in a wetsuit and a neoprene cap to get like a hot swim effect. And then the temperatures in Boulder were also pretty consistently in the 30 C range. So then we would also just sort of qualify like any session that occurred in the heat of the day as a, as a heat session. And we just used a mix of those and, and sort of the peaking and 
reducing of the load was just defined by like the number of stressors we did within a week mm. yeah no saunas or hot baths or anything like that no and yeah i i think the sauna and the hot bath can be quite good but i i, I kind of have two thoughts and, and one is that at the end of the day i think an active intervention maybe could be better than a passive intervention because you're getting familiar with the sensation of exercising in those conditions whereas the sauna and the bath might elicit the adaptation but you don't get sort of maybe the same psychological familiarity um and then two just like the sauna and the hot bath yeah they just have so much to do in the day between all their training that just like adding one more thing they have to do feels inefficient mm, yeah that makes sense um and some specific questions regarding uh, the tokyo uh, course and or well the race dynamics and the course first of all for flora anyway with the goal of of winning and knowing that there are some really fast swimmers there that can also bike making that first pack as we saw in leads can be a make or break moment for getting a gold or not so so i i mean i've heard that that's something that as she focused on the, the swim really between leads and the olympics uh, is, are there any specifics uh, that you can talk about regarding just how she prepared on the swim for making that first pack? Yeah, sure. Um, the swim, yeah, important to make the front pack. I think the whole the whole race is such a momentum race where, like, if she makes the front pack, you can see that, like, immediately. Okay, not every race, but in the way Tokyo, immediately the probability of winning or being in the medals goes way up because you make the front pack if that group goes away on the bike all of a sudden you're racing five people instead of 20 people so just sort of by simple probability it's super important um swimming i don't know a ton about uh and that's been something that's really interesting for me to learn more about as i've been working with flora and kevin and the way we manage the swimming is really that I'm there to try and set out what I think is a fair work balance and where we need easier days and harder days and how that works. And then Flora, and she gets a lot of good input from her husband, Dan, as well. Um, she has a big enough knowledge of swimming over the past years that she's quite happy to manage the sessions she does. Um, but then it's quite often done by just matching up with the groups in town. But the one thing that I said uh, that we did leading up to the games about the swimming was something that I think would sound so uh, basic uh, to like people that really know about swimming. Um, but for me, it was really important as coming from someone outside of swimming. So many of the swim sets that I see people do are on such short recovery um, that it's really, to me, from a physiological perspective, it's really hard to train like a really high level of intensity or speed production because all the sets are so about doing things on such a quick off time. And I understand some of that can be active recovery within the water, but yeah, to me, that's something that we were struggling with a bit and like missing is just one, the takeout speed at the start of the swim, but then sort of the like buffering effect of like the takeout speed and a bit ability to then like settle into more of a threshold pace. So the thing that I really pushed for and that we ended up doing once a week in, say, the six weeks leading up to the game was a session that was much more about really short uh, efforts 
uh, with like a lot, a much longer recovery time between them than we normally would. Cause I think this is for Flora, it was also getting compounded by the fact that, um, you know, chronically she spent a lot of time at altitude, but in 2020, because of COVID, she spent almost no time at altitude. So when she came back to Boulder this year, she was definitely a bit more limited by it and especially limited in the pool where you're naturally in more of a hypoxic state uh, than she had been in past years. And so I think that was limiting her even further to like how much she could almost produce that intensity stimulus in her normal swim training. And I think we saw that a bit in Leeds. So yeah, that was like the one thing we did other than the normal. It was just some sessions that were more focused on speed with longer recovery. That makes a ton of sense. It's something that I I have been talking about before, actually, that, um, yeah, sometimes swimming is driven by tradition more so than physiology in the way sets are are written. And and it's funny that if you're doing 100s with a one-minute rest, then they're called anaerobic in swimming but in cycling or running they would be called vo2 max it would be one minute on one minute off so Mm -hmm. but physiologically it's no no different really but but if we do to construct a conventional vo2 max in swimming it would be more like 15 or 20 seconds off at most between those 100 so so yeah i I totally agree with you there and and that that sounds like a yeah really smart way to go about things um then the bike it wasn't challenging by way of terrain or hills or so but it did have a ton of corners i think 90 plus corners so uh, you already mentioned that during the aerobic phase you you'd still include like those uh surges or sprints and so on and uh, you and you mentioned a couple of sessions where you have those attacking examples as well so it sounds like it's almost built into your training by default to have those sharp accelerations or or sprints uh was there anything that you did you think about this this specifically the amount of corners that uh that the athletes would have to have to go in and out of and the the the, the demands of that yes and no um because like you said it, it's like a big part of my training system i guess that i really work a lot with sprinting and constant change of pace and resistance to sprinting uh sort of like accumulation of sprints uh because i think that uh yeah, all the ITU courses, this is becoming more and more of a demand. And even if it's not a demand in terms of you see it on the bike where like, oh, well, if they could sprint better, they would have made that group. Or if they could sprint better, they would attack. I think you still have to make those sprints. And so ability to resist fatigue from them has a big impact on how you run off the bike. Um, but one thing we did, it's, it's a small but subtle difference. If like normally a lot of times in sprint training in the base season, we would do more like 20 second sprints with long recovery. Um, and pretty early already in the season, I just started this idea of doing more sprints with less of a focus on like max power production, which is uh, like why I would do the 20 seconds with say two or three minutes recovery between and more on like, resistance to sprint accumulation um so we're doing much more like three sets of five times 10 second sprint 50 seconds recovery where they're not as good and it'd be almost more just like making an acceleration than say like a sprint for a finish line in a bike race but just kind of all year working on this resistance to accumulation of sprints and then even in like a normal three or four hour base endurance ride it might be easy base endurance 
but then also in, accumulate 20 to 25 times six to eight second sprints. Um, so yeah, we just, yeah, for the pedaling side of it, yeah, we just work on accumulating resistance to a lot of sprints. Mm, got it. Um, next, uh, a general question around training for in, in draft legal triathlon and, uh, yeah, what's, what's going on there. Uh, do you have any thoughts on what areas within the training preparation that are pretty much similar across the board in all of the top athletes uh, in uh, world triathlon these days and what areas there might be more variations and differences between athletes and between between coaching groups and squads and so on yeah it's pretty interesting because i definitely don't uh consider myself as someone that knows a lot about triathlon um i come from cycling And uh, when Flora asked me to start working with her, now that was four years ago, so I've learned a lot more about it. Um, but it, it's definitely something that I'm not super aware of what other people are doing necessarily. But just from what I hear or what I listen to, I, I do feel like there's there's big variations all over the place. Because I hear about, uh, you know, some people that do quite a bit of double swims or might do double or even triple run days or, or weeks where it's very much a run focused week um, and everything else is pulled back or weeks where it's very much a bike focused week and other things are pulled back. Um, and I hear about like big variations in sort of like run volume from people on the men's side running as much as like 150 K a week at times. Um, and then other people that <laughs> run even just 40 or 50 K a week. Um, and I think people that on the running side train a bit more like we do, which I would say is kind of like almost traditional-ish run training. Like if you look at the workouts that Flora and Kevin both do, they're, they're pretty common running workouts, you know, um, whereas others maybe do almost more like driven by cycling stuff, like two times 15 minutes threshold or something but like that's not a very common sort of run vernacular so yeah I, I and also i guess from what i've saw with then i started working with kevin i think some groups use for sure a lot less intensity or or quality on the bike or they might be focused more on on thresholds than on sort of change of pace and yeah it's it, it's one that i don't have a great answer to because at the end of the day i don't i don't necessarily know what other people are doing but my impression is there's a ton of variety um mm. yeah so so that's an interesting example with kevin so you're saying that when when you started working with him a, ch a change that he made would be having more intensity on the bike uh, compared to to before are there any other changes that come to mind for either kevin or flora that Uh, they specifically have done uh, after started starting working with you yeah i mean i think doing a bit more intensity on the bike overall is part of this also doing a fair bit more like uh i, I just call it zone two riding but quite focused uh not just easy aerobic uh, pedaling along at a comfortable pace but we'll do quite a lot of steady on the pedals sort of like higher aerobic endurance power rides um not every day and not the uh, yeah not not in an overkill kind of way i guess i think but 
that's something that was a bit new for both of them that I think just gives them a really strong foundation uh, to build upon, like two, three hours, just really steady power the whole time. Um, and then a lot of times we'll do two, three hours, then steady power, but then also with sprinkling sprints in all along the way. Um, those were a bit new for both of them. Um, with Flora, I think the biggest thing we changed is almost more like it's, it's two things. Uh, one is training really consistently in a pattern of like two weeks of loading, one week of recovery. Um, okay, that gets changed every now and then depending on where races fall, but we almost always are training in that way. And that's something that Ernie, her run coach and I really believe in together. And so we are totally in sync with it together. And I think that has been a big tool. Um, and so Kevin's doing the same thing. And then the second would just be like, I think a lot of the bike workouts Flora was doing before are almost not that different to what she does now because she was working with Neil Henderson, who also as a coach has a big cycling background. So yeah, maybe some of the sessions are a little bit different, but if they're that different in terms of actuality, I think they're not. Um, I think the bigger difference that we've built towards is just having a clear picture and periodization of the season and like when we use those workouts and, and when we don't use those workouts. And, and like I was saying before, of like sort of cycling the base and intensity periods. Mm, yeah. Um, then another question is with your uh, background in sports science, uh, what's your view on balancing the art and the science of coaching and training? Yeah. I mean, for me, coaching is, is really almost more, art than science because i think that every there's plenty of literature out there and a lot of research and always things coming forward but every research paper that's published is on a certain population in a certain context with a certain performance test that is what they use to say that there was a difference in whatever intervention they applied to the group so for me the art is trying to be like aware of everything that's emerging so that you don't get left behind, but then figuring out how to apply that to your athlete, um, which is an always changing context because now this year they have one more year of load in their system than they did the year before. And, and that has an impact and like maybe they have an injury they have to deal with maybe psychologically, Uh, something needs to change because it's just not exciting anymore, even though physiologically it seems like maybe it, it should just work fine. Um, so yeah, I think the art is more in like trying to tease out the nuances of like taking the principles that we believe in from what we learn from sports science and applying them in a, in a good way and, and managing like the whole ecosystem uh, that an athlete exists in. Yeah, yeah. The, the science can be a good starting point, uh, but then you need to iterate from there uh, based on you know, the athlete you have in front of you. Yeah, I agree. Um, all right. And um, I don't know, have you have you always been coaching uh, on the professional side? It sounded like that when in when you introduced yourself, uh, but or have you ever had any age groupers or amateurs that you've been coaching on the side? Yeah, actually quite a lot. So I... Um... I finished 
college and then I started, I, I actually was just looking, I wasn't really planning to be a coach. I was just looking for a job. And in the meanwhile, I was coaching uh, my college roommate, uh, just more just for fun, not like he was even paying me more, just I thought it was interesting and it was just two friends having fun. Um, and then from there, when I was looking for a job, I started saying, hey, if there's someone in the local community that needs some coaching, I, I'd like to try for like $100 a month, I'd like to try. Um, and so then I was coaching, yeah, just a few amateur mountain bikers and stuff, and just having fun with it and, and learning from it. And then I worked for around a year for a coaching company in Boulder, and there I was working with a lot of athletes, like uh, up to 40 athletes at one time. And so there I was working with a lot of amateur athletes and uh, yeah, mainly people that have jobs and families. And it, it might be something that's really important to them, but it's not something that they can place in their life as the top priority. They have other responsibilities and, and things they need to focus on. Um, and even now over the past, uh, seven, eight years that maybe I've been working more with professional athletes. I've always been working with also some amateur and age group athletes and this sort of thing. Mm. So then I'd like to ask you uh, if you can give your top three tips for, for age group or amateur triathletes or endurance athletes. It can be agnostic to, to the actual sport. It could be cycling or, or triathlon or whatever that, uh, as you say, they have jobs and maybe a family on the side and uh, they they are passionate about their sport and want to improve but uh, but it's not uh, how they make their living or their number one priority in life yeah uh so for me one important thing is don't overdo the intensity just because you're limited on time um i think that's been like maybe a trend over the past few years especially with more of these like uh zwift racing and stuff coming out of the uh, it's really fun and feels really productive to if you only have an hour to just completely smash it. Um, and I think that there's some value in that, but I also think it, then you get pretty quickly to a point where you just flatline. So I think it's really important still to try and uh, put an emphasis on aerobic base work and lower intensity, even if you don't have time to do like a four or five hour training ride or longer training sessions or a two hour long run, like you hear about professionals doing just doing the lower intensity work still makes the higher intensity work better. And I think that balance is quite important. Um, so that's one. Another is to try and find a routine in which you can be consistent in. I mean, I think it's always the case that life pops up and things have to change. But I think if you can find the routine of, okay, Monday's my recovery day and Tuesday I wake up early so I can do this. And then Wednesday, I, I get out after work because there's a group going and I can go there. Like once you find that routine and those resources of what they are, then I think it allows prog that's like build the ability to be consistent. And same thing, that's how you make progress over time. Um, and then the third would be also place some emphasis on nutrition and, and learning about nutrition, uh, because I think people quite easily get sucked into the trap of just thinking that like if they're tired or if they're struggling three hours into an event, it's just because that's their fitness. That's just their only limiter. 
but I've seen with so many people where they're not performing to the level that they have the fitness to do so because their nutrition's not sufficient enough to ride at their maximum capacity for ride, run, whatever it may be. Hmm. Yeah. Great. And, uh, was it four years ago you said that you started working in triathlon? Yes. End of 2017 with Flora. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if you could go back to that point in time and uh, tell yourself something uh, as a coach, uh, what, what would you tell yourself? Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm happy with how things have gone, but I, I, yeah, I think I would just say to slow down and, and take plenty of time making, making decisions and kind of think about uh, repercussions uh you know i don't i don't really say that due to any decision in particular i feel like i went quite wrong with um but i think that that's just something that always always pays off is to just take time and and make a decision that that you feel good about and sometimes waiting a bit to make a decision on something whether it be a race or doing a certain type of training cycle um the decision gets made easier when you get a little bit closer and more evidence kind of uh, shows itself and the decision becomes clear. So sometimes I have quite a predisposition to want to plan, plan, plan. And I think that really helps me. But I also think that it's easy to get a bit carried away with it. And sometimes you just need to wait and see what point you're at and then you'll know what to do. Yeah. And uh, what's one thing within uh, coaching or endurance sports that you are currently fascinated about or learning about uh and why yeah it's, it's a bit basic but i would say also nutrition just because for me it's like i was saying about the response to the age group thing it, it's something that really goes underlooked in terms of okay maybe not underlooked because i think a lot of people invest a lot of time and energy in it but it just has a huge impact on how you carry and manage training load how you perform within a race um but it so for me, that's something that I'm always paying attention to, whether it's like carbohydrate intake or what fueling options are out there, or also learning more just about like reading blood labs and how we can use that information and, and react to them, whether it means like needing more supplementation or a change in diet or, or rest. So it's kind of a broad answer. Um, but all of that is something that I'm always trying to learn more about and find what the like actionable pieces are to pass on to the athletes yeah no that's great uh and, and we talked a lot on this podcast about nutrition for long course triathlon in particular but also for just general fueling your day-to-day -day workouts and i'm actually working on an episode with multiple contributors multiple uh, high-level coaches for workout fueling that will be out uh, a few weeks after this episode, I believe, maybe a month or so. But one thing that we haven't really talked about at all is fueling the fueling that uh, that the top short course athletes do in their races, and specifically in Olympic distance racing. I don't think the sprint is necessarily limited by fuel. But uh, could you give some examples, uh, if you know off the top of your head, how much did Kevin and Flora consume in the in the Olympics on on the bike and and the run? Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh... Yeah, I think the fueling is really important. So, um, Flora and Kevin, they'll, they differ a little bit, but they'll take a gel, 
before the race, um, but also a caffeine gel with like around 150 milligrams of caffeine, uh, which I I count in the category of nutrition, but that's a big help in performance. And they'll take that gel around half an hour uh, before the race uh, to kind of allow time for caffeine levels to rise and hopefully be sort of hitting a peak when they're getting on the bike. And then, okay, the swim, you don't take in any fuel. Um, on the bike, they would have both gotten through two bottles that had a small amount of carbohydrate in it, probably around 20 grams per bottle, um, but keeping that bottle more of like a lower carbohydrate concentration. So it's more that you're getting the hydrating effect from the bottle rather than the fueling effect, especially as we're anticipating quite a hot race. So I think that's quite important to have that be like the priority of the bottle is hydration, not carb intake. And then they would have taken, Kevin would have taken three gels that were uh, 25 grams of carbs each on the bike. Um, and Flora would have taken two. Um, and then they each would have taken one more gel right at the start of the run. Um, uh, Kevin's would have been the caffeine gel. Flora's, I think, was just a normal gel. Um, same thing, it'll be around 25 grams of carbs. And then on the run, no other real additional fueling. Kevin had a uh, a gel as like an option to grab halfway through the run if he felt like he needed it. But at, at that point, you'd be grabbing the gel with 15 minutes to go, which you can have a little bit of a benefit, like as now research has shown from just having that taste of uh, glucose in the mouth, but it, it wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't be massive. So yeah, in total, Kevin would have had around 140 grams of carbs in the two hour event. So I think that's actually pretty good. Yep. Still comes out to 70 grams of carbs an hour for two hours. Um, and Flora would have had probably more like around 100 grams of carbs. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Great. And uh, now let's move on to the rapid fire questions. So take just one sentence to answer these. And the first one is what's your favorite book, blog or resource related to endurance sports? Um, for me, it's open by Andre Agassi. Yeah, you're not the first person who said, uh, it's not, who said that. Actually, there's been a couple of guests previously that said that same thing, and, and that actually got me to, to get that book on Audible. And uh, I agree, it's a fantastic listen. Uh, really, really, yeah. uh, really, really great. And uh, yeah, what's, really what's an important habit that you've benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? Um, I would just say planning and note-taking. Uh, I think I think it really helps me that I I always keep a lot of notes of our training process, so it makes it really easy for me to reflect on what worked and what didn't work. And who's somebody you look up to or that has inspired you? Um, yeah, hopefully she's not going to listen to this, but I'll actually say Flora, um, because for me it was actually quite a surprise when she asked me to coach her uh, four years ago, and I think it really pushed me. To, to grow as a coach, uh, learning about triathlon. And also it's been a, a bit of a pressure to work with an athlete of her level and can deliver. But for me, it's been a really positive pressure and allowed me to have a bit more confidence in myself. So yeah, she's quite inspired me to try and always be moving forward and yeah, be a positive part of her team. 
Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And uh, well, she's inspired so many people and so many triathletes uh, around the world. So you're definitely not alone with that that one either. Uh, I'm a huge fan of of Flores and uh, and well, but we should also, as you say, remember that Kevin had uh, a just as phenomenal race considering what his goals were at the start of the season. And and uh, so, yeah, huge congratulations to you and uh, both of your athletes for uh, the Olympics in Tokyo 2020. 2021 <laughs> yeah thank you yeah no thanks i'm yeah i'm really proud of kevin it's been it's been amazing to to work with him and yeah it's been a great year right well uh finally nate where can people follow you do you have social media or websites or things like that uh where uh people can find you yeah i have a uh so i have a personal coaching company um that's catalyst coaching uh the instagram is catalyst coach uh, but we have a small group of coaches. So you can find us on Instagram at Catalyst Coach. Uh, you can find our website at catalystcoachingco.com. Um, and if, if you want to follow me personally on Instagram, you can follow me at Nate underscore Wilson 329. But that's, uh, that account is mainly just photos of like, uh, sunsets and my wife and, uh, horses and stuff. It's not really a sports account. Right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Nate. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com and we'll have links there to Nate's coaching website and his social media profile, both coaching business and personal. Uh, one announcement that I want to make here is that we have confirmed the dates for our Scientific Triathlon 2022 training camp, and that will be on the 27th of March to the 1st of April 2022 on Mallorca, as we had planned to do this year. But uh, of course, this year was cancelled due to travel restrictions due to the pandemic. You can find all the information on scientifictriathlon.com forward slash camp, or just press the training camp tab in on the website menu. This camp will not be about just going to Mallorca and smashing yourself with training. It will be about coming to a camp and training in a smart way that us coaches will guide you through and we will help each individual adapt the week to their goals. We will help you go to the camp and go away from it having learned a lot and got a lot of feedback and advice from us that will help you beyond just a week of the training camp we will have tons of things beyond the training uh, to to help you with that but of course there will also be great uh, opportunities to socialize with other like-minded individuals as of now this is the only training camp that we have confirmed for 2022 and we expect it to fill up so do register your interest quickly to make sure you get a slot and you will do that on the registration interest registration form on that page that i mentioned scientifictriathlon.com forward slash camp so we all hope to see you on mallorca next year and also i hope to see you next monday when we have another Olympic gold medalist coach on the podcast, and that is, uh, of course, Adil Tweiten, who is the Norwegian head coach, a former guest on the show a couple of times. You can prepare for next Monday by going back and listening to those, a couple of my favorite episodes of all time. And uh, Christian Blumenfeld, of course, uh, took the men's individual gold medal in Tokyo. So it will be great to catch up with Adil and discuss that. Now, big thanks again to our sponsors that help keep the show going. Precision Hydration, that you can find on Precision hydration.com 
Go and take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy or use the quick carb calculator to find out how much you should fuel and use the precision fuel range products to make it really easy to hit your numbers. You can get 15% off your order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15 on precisionhydration.com. And thank you to Senate. Use the Senate Swim Trainer to improve your technique, power, and stamina, and increase your swim stimulus frequency and consistency even when you can't get to the pool or open water. You can get 20% off your swim trainer with a promo code that you can get on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.